Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, and we will be looking at verses 36 to 46 of Matthew chapter 26. We will be covering a grand theological issue subject this morning, and then moving from that into a more traditional exposition of the text. Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 36 to 46, and if you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So, leaving them again, he went and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The Lord, in his letter to the Hebrews, exhorts us, exhorts every single one of us here this morning who is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the name of Christ alone, to keep looking to Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2, keep looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Those words mean the author and the trailblazer. If you wanted to put a modern-day illustration to it, imagine someone with machete in hand hacking down all of the overgrowth to create a pathway where there was no pathway before. Jesus is the trailblazer of our faith, who, Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Enduring the cross means he is the one who brings it to its perfect completion. He is the one, the only one who can rightly say, it is finished. Despising the shame, meaning he thought little of the shame that was associated with death by crucifixion and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So here is a grand truth that is revealed to us. A joy was set before Christ, and for this joy, he endured the cross, brought it to its completion, and despised the shame, meaning thought little of the shame associated with the cross. So the question then for us is this. What exactly is this joy that was set before Jesus? Because for it, Jesus, the Son, the second person of the triune God, took on flesh, made his dwelling among us, and became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. What could move Almighty God to carry out such a thing? It was the joy set before him. This joy set before the Son was and is first 
the glorification, the exaltation, the magnification of his heavenly father in and by the purchase and redemption of a people, of a church, of all the faithful saints throughout the ages. Jesus loves his Father in heaven, and he loves, as do we, to see the name of his Father in heaven adored and praised by his creation. And so Jesus, he comes to the earth, and he also loves the church that he has come to redeem. He loves his body. He loves his bride. He loves his people, which means that the joy set before him includes all who will be saved by grace through faith in his name. Meaning, if you believe here this morning, you are the joy that was set before him. Your name and your face were set before Christ in eternity past. And for your sake, he pioneered and paved the pathway to salvation, to forgiveness, to eternal life by enduring the cross in your stead. If you would believe in the name of Jesus Christ this morning, you are the joy that was set before him. Because your salvation points to the majesty and the mercy and the grace and the wisdom and the power and the goodness of our most excellent and awesome God. But think for a second, have we, do we really stop to consider the lengths and the depths that Jesus went to to seek and to save the lost for the glory of his Father? There are times when we will rightly point to the physical suffering that Jesus endured on his way to the cross and as he was fastened to the cross. We will remember that he was whipped and he was scourged and he was fastened to a cross by Roman executioners. And we will rightly consider the shouts of the same crowds who had followed him just a few hours earlier. Now, with rabid ferocity, crying out, Crucify him. Crucify him. We can try to a degree to put ourselves in Christ's place, to feel and to sense the anger that would have risen up in you and in I as the crowds mocked him and pulled out his beard and struck him and spit in his face. Wondering if you or I, the answer is no, by the way, could have exhibited the the same divine degree of meekness shown by Christ. You know that as these men were pulling out his beard and as these men were fastening him to a cross, at any point in time, Jesus could have said, enough, and destroyed every single one of them. He possessed the power to do such a thing, but he was truly meek. We can think about all of these horrific evils that were committed against him, but in my estimation, it isn't these physical sufferings that present primarily to us the incalculable depths of Christ's passion to glorify his Father and redeem you. Godly men throughout history, godly women throughout history have endured the stripes and the scourges of evil rulers for their faith. They have endured without a word the most exquisitely painful tortures. If you have the time, go and read the faith-inspiring stories of men like Hugh Latimer and William Tyndale, both of whom were burned at the stake for their faithfulness and went joyfully to those stakes. Take up and read the biographies that tell of numerous missionaries throughout history who have been killed for their faithfulness and were joy, were inspired by their love for the Lord to give up their life. This is in no way downplaying the physical sufferings that Christ endured, but it is here in these three prayers at the Garden of Gethsemane that the depths of Christ's passion to glorify the Father in and by your redemption and salvation are most clearly revealed. 
Here in this garden just hours before his betrayal into the hands of wicked men. It is here in the garden of Gethsemane that we are shown to what degree Christ humbled himself as he considered and with great anguish and sorrow of soul looked ahead to what it will take for him to fulfill, to complete, to blaze the trail as he saw approaching everything that he must do to secure this redemption, everything he must experience, the most awful, the most horrendous, the most terrifying and terrible event that has ever come to pass in all of eternity past and will ever come to pass in all eternity future, is at one and the same time the very thing that Jesus must endure. It is the very thing that he must accomplish for the joy that has been set before him. And as Jesus sees it approaching on this night, even for him, if you look at the text, even for him, it's almost too much to bear. He said to his disciples in verse 38, look at it, my soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. And in verse 39, going a little farther to pray, we read him falling on his face and praying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But before we answer the question, what is it that caused Jesus to experience such anguish and distress? What is it that caused him to fall on his face and pray that if it is possible, the cup might pass from him? We must address a mystery that is revealed by such a prayer. Because this is one of the most significant and appreciable mysteries revealed to us in Scripture. That our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is at one and the same time an absolutely flawless uniting of two natures. Both truly and perfectly human and truly perfectly divine. Jesus is the God-man. He is as the Apostle John wrote, the Word of God. And as such, John declares this about him. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all praise to our sovereign, exalted, and triune God, this divine Word, this Son of God, Jesus, John 1.14 tells us, made his, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He took on flesh. Why? In order to seek and to save the lost. He took on flesh, being born of a virgin, to take away the sin of the world, to give his life as a ransom for many. He took on flesh so that all who receive him as Lord and Savior, all who believe in his name, would be given the right to become children of God, as John wrote in his gospel in chapter 1, verse 12. The Apostle Paul also, writing to the Philippian church, explained as he exhorted them to be of one of the same mind, of be, to having the same love, being in full accord with one another, he said this, consider the example of Jesus, in Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So I want to just look at that text again, but break it down so that we understand it a little bit. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, that means he was of the same essence of God, as God, meaning he is truly and perfectly God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Grasped, meaning he did not assert his rights as divine, but instead looked at, to benefit us. And he emptied himself. How did he empty himself? Not by subtraction, not by divesting himself of his divinity, but look, it says, but by the addition of flesh. By taking the form, meaning by taking the essence, the substance, or in other words, truly becoming human. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness or the image of men. 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus take the form of a servant? Why be born in the likeness of flesh? Why empty himself by taking on flesh and making his dwelling among us? Well, the Lord reveals the answer to this question in Hebrews chapter 2. Listen to it. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Since the children, that is us, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong Slavery. Did you see it? Jesus became flesh, took on flesh, because we are flesh and blood. Jesus assumed the very nature that he had come to save so that he might perfect it and redeem us. He could come and live the perfect, righteous life in the flesh that we need so that he could apply it to our account. The early church father, Gregory of Nazianzus, said this, What is not assumed is not redeemed. Meaning Jesus had to become flesh, blood, mind, soul, truly human. He took on humanity to redeem humanity. And as truly human, he redeems humans truly. For this reason, the writer of Hebrews continues in verse 16 and 17, Surely it is not angels he helps. The reason for that is, if it was, he would have assumed their form and their nature. But he helps the offspring of Abraham, meaning humans joined to the promises given to Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, meaning he had to take on flesh and blood in order to save those who are flesh and blood, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation or to appease the sins of the people. So, as Scripture clearly declares here, true divinity, true humanity are united in the one person, Jesus Christ. And the purpose of this union is the glory of God in the redemption of mankind. Christ the God-man is, by virtue of being the God-man, the only one who exists that is perfectly suited as God to represent God to mankind and as man to intercede for man to God. As man... Christ perfectly fulfilled the law of God, living an impeccably sinless life in the flesh. And then he bore the wrath of God in place of all who will trust in his name for salvation. As God, Jesus is the only one who could bear up under the righteous, just, holy, and furious wrath of God being poured out upon him in our place as he took our sin upon himself, as he who became sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, as he bore the curse for us in our place. Christ, as the God-man is, he brings about what the magisterial reformers, men like Martin Luther, called the great exchange. One of my favorite doctrines ever. For all who truly call upon the name of Jesus for salvation, Jesus takes upon himself, he took upon himself the wrath of God, the penalty that is due to you for your sin and gives to you, credits to your account, the perfect, righteous, sinless, law-fulfilling life that he lived in the flesh. So that when God looks at you this morning, you who are saved by grace through faith in Christ, you who are a part of God's family, you adopted into the family of God, when he looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. That's been dealt with by the God-man Jesus Christ. 
What he sees is you clothed in the perfection of Jesus, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Your sin is dealt with by Christ, and it is exchanged for the perfect righteousness won for us by Christ. See that? The great exchange. Your sin on him, his righteousness on you. And all of this is possible because Jesus took on flesh, made his dwelling among us, because he lived a perfect sinless life in the flesh and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because listen, you could never do this on your own. I could never do this on my own. Your goodness is not goodness. Your good works are not good works in the eyes of God when done apart from faith in him. There is nothing you could do. There is nothing I could do to win the salvation or to purchase the salvation or to secure the salvation of our souls. It had to come because God took on flesh and did it for us. If Jesus hadn't come to accomplish this for us, every single one of us would be eternally doomed at this very moment. Now, we can try to understand to a degree the results. We can understand the results of his Christ's incarnation. That by taking on flesh, he has saved us and redeemed us and ensured that our sins are forgiven and that eternal life is ours. But to understand this relationship between the divine and human natures of Christ in the one person... This has been a subject beyond our ability to fully grasp. And Christian leaders have labored for millennia to more precisely describe and understand and explain this. It's always been and still remains one of the preeminent mysteries. It's one that reveals to us how exalted and how majestic and how high above our infinite or our finite minds that our infinite God is. It reveals to us that we, we, like it says in Job, we know certain things, but even we could know everything, and even then we'd only know the outskirts of God's goodness, God's majesty. How quickly we reach the end of our mental capacities when trying to understand how it is that an omniscient, all-knowing, truly divine Christ, who while on earth knew exactly what is in man, who knew what people were thinking, who knew what people were whispering out of earshot, who knew well beforehand who it was that would betray him, who as divine understood and knows all things, at the very same time as truly human, according to Luke, increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men, who also at the same time being as being the omniscient divine God, could say things during his earthly sojourn like this in Matthew 24, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, meaning himself, but the Father only. How do we put those two things together? God has chosen not to reveal that to us. We hit the limits of our mind's comprehensive power when we try to understand how it is that the omnipresent divine God who cannot be contained by temples made with human hands, the God who said through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 23, 24, do I not fill heaven and earth? The very God about whom King David wrote in Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the grave, you are there. This God in Christ also dwells and treads the earth as a truly human man. The Puritans, my favorite being Stephen Charnock. If you get my emails week to week, you'll know that this has been a name that has come up quite a bit. He actually wrote this about this particular subject. Jesus comes from heaven by incarnation and remains in heaven by his divinity. He was, while he spoke to Nicodemus, locally on earth in regard of his humanity, but in heaven according to his deity, as well as upon the earth in the union of his divine and human nature. He descended upon earth, but he didn't leave heaven. 
He was then in the world as a man while he discoursed with Nicodemus, yet so that he was also in heaven as God. Try to comprehend that. Our minds cannot fully comprehend how it is that this Christ, who is truly God, who is, the, as Colossians 1 tells us, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the one by whom all things were created in heaven or on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and listen to this, and in him all things hold together. In Christ, all things hold together, even as incarnate and truly human. Christ, through whom all things were made and by whom all things are held together during his earthly life, resided in that very creation and as divine upheld it by the word of his power, even as he is whipped and scourged and crucified by the very people he held together by the word of his power. It is beyond our faculties to grasp how it is that the almighty, the all-powerful, one true God now in flesh experiences the weakness of hunger in the wilderness and fatigue from unceasing ministry to and among the lost sheep of the house of Israel. How it is how it is that we come to our text this morning and we see Jesus praying in the garden with such intensity and such anguish that if possible, the cup might pass from him. That as he prays, Luke tells us his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. This Jesus, the only one who could rightly say in response to Thomas's the disciple Thomas's request, show us the Father in John 14. This Jesus who could say in response things like, if you know me, you know the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The Father dwells in me, the truly divine Jesus who, because he is in the Father and the Father is in him, would say things like, my food what sustains me is to do the will of him, my Father, who sent me and to accomplish his work. The same Jesus who said this now prays in the Garden of Gethsemane in his human weakness. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. We are the deeper we seek to understand this mystery left to say with the Apostle Paul, Oh, the depths and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. It would seem to me that the church fathers writing on this subject over 1,500 years ago set down for us the best understanding of scripture on the subject. The best and the clearest words on this high and lofty issue, the best explanation. Hear the words of Leo the Great. It's a long quote, so bear with me. Leader of the church in Rome in the 400s, explaining the orthodox, faithful, acceptable understanding of the truly divine and truly human natures united in the person of Jesus Christ. Quote, The whole body of the faithful confess their faith in God the Father Almighty and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. By these three statements, the strategies of almost all the heretics are overthrown. God is both Almighty and Father. As a result, the Son is seen to be co-eternal with God, differing in no respect from the Father. For Christ was born God of God, almighty of almighty, co-eternal of eternal, not later in time, not inferior in power, not different in glory, not divided in essence. The same 
holy begotten eternal son of the eternal father was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. But this birth in time has taken nothing from and added nothing to that divine eternal nativity, but has bestowed itself wholly on the restoration of humanity. Humanity which had been deceived that it might overcome death and by its own virtue, the devil who had the power of death. For we could not overcome the author of sin and death unless the Son had taken our nature and made it his own. Him whom sin could not defile, him death could not retain. Now here's where it gets a little bit difficult. Thus the properties of each nature and substance, meaning humanity and deity, the properties of each, are preserved in their totality and come together to form one person. Humanity or humility is assumed by majesty, weakness by strength, mortality by eternity, and to pay the debt that we had incurred, an inviolable nature was united to a nature that can suffer. And so to fulfill the conditions of our healing, the human being, Jesus Christ, one and the same mediator between God and humanity, was able to die in respect to his humanity, yet unable to die in respect to his deity. Thus there was born true God in the entire and perfect nature of true humanity, complete in his own properties, complete in ours. That's key. Listen to that again. Thus there was born true God in the entire and perfect nature of true humanity, complete in his own properties and complete in ours. And each nature preserves its own characteristics without decreasing or cutting back the others. So that the form of a servant does not detract from the form of God. Each nature performs its proper functions in communion with the other. The word performs what pertains to the word. The flesh what pertains to the flesh. The one is resplendent with miracles. The other submits to insults. The word withdraws not from his equality with the Father's glory. The flesh does not desert the nature of our kind. That's the simplest explanation. If you want that, I can give it to you. Just ask me for it later. Maybe I'll send it out on Tuesday in the church email. Now, as we see Jesus in the garden at Gethsemane, we see him, the God-man, truly human, sorrowful and anguished at the cup that he will soon drink. And divine in that he is the only one. He is the only way. He is the only person who can fulfill the Father's will to redeem and to save mankind. The truly human Jesus in agony fell on his face and cried out, If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And the truly divine Jesus immediately follows up that prayer with, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. As Leo the Great wrote, we see the Christ in whom weakness was assumed by strength, crying out in both human weakness and divine strength here in the garden. And as we come to Christ's prayers in the garden on this, the night he was betrayed, we get a glimpse of what must be done to heal and to redeem and to purchase and to save sinners. We see in deeper and greater measure what it meant for Jesus to be obedient unto death, even death on a cross. You see, in our day, the general mass of humanity doesn't believe, nor do they seem to care, that right now they live under the wrath and condemnation of God, of a holy God. We read this in John's account, for example. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And in John 3.36, we read, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The world that we live in is one in which Romans 1.18 is clear. 
The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. If you go back and you read Romans 1, you will see that our current cultural climate is almost exactly what is described in Romans 1. And God is giving this society over to its depravity and in hopes that this society will turn to the Savior. We needed, more than anything else, a solution to this primary problem. This wrath of God, unless it is stayed, unless it is turned aside, unless it is appeased, it will tear apart anyone and everyone upon whom it falls. The writer of Hebrews is true. It's true when he said, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God as he vents his vengeance and he vents his judgment against and upon the unsaved. And Jesus, who took on flesh to solve this, our most pressing obstacle to true joy, our salvation and forgiveness, he reveals to us in the garden a glimpse of the grief that he must endure to help us. The anguish and the affliction and the suffering he must go through. The torment that he must face to pay the penalty that we owe. And as we look at this text, we see what God in Christ must do to purchase our salvation. And as we get to verse 36, we see after Jesus announced that the disciples would all fall away from him on that night. After telling Peter that he would deny Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. After this interaction, verse 36 says, Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And John tells us that Judas knew this place because this is where Jesus met with his disciples regularly or oftentimes. That gives us an example. an insight into how it was that Judas knew that Jesus would be there on this night. But don't miss this fact. Gethsemane was a what? It was a garden. That's an important detail because here it is, in a garden, once again, the fate of humanity is at stake. You remember, way back in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve chose their own wills over the command of God. And now, as Jesus takes his disciples with him to this garden at Gethsemane, he is faced with a similar test. And while the fruit of avoiding the cup he must drink might in his human weakness look more pleasing than actually drinking that cup, Jesus will succeed where Adam failed. And he will secure for us the the way back to a right relationship with God. And if you take a look at scenes like this, it's scenes like this that help us see the credibility of the Gospels as reliable sources. Throughout history, no one makes up scenes like this to describe their king. To display the king of the Jews falling on his face in grief, distressed and anguished in his human weakness, crying out, is there any other way? And so as they arrive here at the garden, Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Simon, or Peter, and the two sons of Zebedee, the text tells us, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. This word here, sorrowful, means saddened and vexed and in anguish. He was sorrowful and troubled. That word troubled there means upset and despondent and distressed and grievously disturbed. This is Jesus we're talking about here. What could possibly bring the Messiah, our Lord and our Savior, to a place of such internal turmoil? Again, it's not primarily the physical pain and the suffering that he will endure at the hands of treacherous men in just a few hours. But he sees and understands 
at this moment that the guilt of every sinner who will believe in his name for all of human history will in just a little bit of time be transferred to his shoulders. And then the wrath of his Father in heaven will be poured out upon him for it. See, the Father has now brought Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb, to the cross for sacrifice. In the Old Testament, when a saint would bring their offering to the temple for a sacrifice, we read this in Leviticus 1 verse 4. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. And Jesus now recognizes that the hand of every single sinner who has turned to him in faith will be laid on his head. And he will be accepted as our atoning sacrifice. And in so doing, our sin, your sin, my sin, will be imputed and reckoned to him, the lamb who is about to die in our place. And at this moment, Jesus can sense it. He can feel the oncoming weight of our guilt. The moment is fast approaching when God will make Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You get it. The weight of the world's sin is about to be placed on the shoulders of Christ who will bear it and pay its penalty in our place. And in that moment when he becomes sin and he is feeling the wrath of God the Father while he is fastened to the cross, you remember what he calls out. My God my God, why have you forsaken me? Understand those words. Understand the gravity of those words. Something occurs that has never in eternity occurred in that moment. For the first time, the relationship between the persons of the Trinity is something other than perfect harmony. As Christ experiences forsakenness. We sing it, right? The Father turns his face away. This is, this forthcoming experience is what causes Christ to fall on his face and to experience this turmoil. Something that we cannot fathom, something we cannot begin to understand is about to take place between Father and Son. As the Son becomes sin to save us, and Christ, whose food is to do the will of his Father, now experiences or will experience the forsakenness of his Father. And the knowledge of this reality, even if it lasts just for a moment, is enough to bring Jesus to this level of distress and trouble in the garden. But even so, we know the end of the story, and for the joy set before him, he continued on. But Jesus said to Peter next in verse 38, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Notice, Jesus doesn't keep his sorrow and anguish to himself, but he tells the three disciples who are with him. He said, my soul is sorrowful. And this is a different word than the one that's used in verse 37. This word means I am crushed by grief and anguish. I am swallowed up by and overwhelmed by sorrow to the point that if I, a little bit more, I will die. Do you see the degree of grief that Jesus is experiencing in this moment his anguish is so extreme that it stretched him and it racked him to the very limits of his human capacity. The idea here is that the distress was so heavy upon him that any more being loaded on him might mean his physical death. Have you ever been that anguished? The picture is of an anguish that intensifies as the hour draws near. And this intense emotional agony itself almost brought him to the point of death before he got to the cross. 
So he tells Peter and James and John to wait and to watch, to stand guard, to ensure that no interruptions come because he needs to pray to his father for strength and for supply. You see, the disciples should have been ready for this. They had celebrated and they observed the Passover many, many times before. And Jesus asking them to keep watch with him should have been met with, yeah, okay, we've done this before. Because here's what the Lord commanded be done in Israel at every single Passover celebrated. Exodus 12, 41. On the, night of, the night of Passover is a night of watching by the Lord to bring Israel out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. They were supposed to stay up and watch anyway because that's what the Lord had commanded and that's what Israel did on this night. So Jesus was just telling them, do what you always do on this night. Stay awake. Be watchful. And on this night, the night of the greater Passover, the deliverance to which all other deliverances pointed, to which all others were merely shadows and pictures, Jesus the Lord watches in the night. He asked his disciples to do the same. And verse 39 tells us that going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed. See, Jesus threw himself to the ground, face down, in complete humble submission to his fathers, while in the throes of his most intense agony and distress. He turns to his own and to our own only recourse, which is to cast all of our cares on the Lord in prayer. Requests, petitions, distress, sorrow, troubles, the agony of his soul, he commits it all to his father. And he prayed with such fervor that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And what was his prayer? My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. If it were possible, if you could somehow align it or make it, the cup passing from me align with your will and purpose, if you could exalt and glorify your name in some other means other than this, if there is any other way to redeem and to deliver sinful man, may this cup pass from me. The truly human Jesus here is suffering agony at the prospect of the cup. The cup here means the wrath of God, what he must endure, the curse of God that will come upon him as the Father vents his furious, holy, righteous anger against sin upon Jesus because Jesus is bearing it all. Jesus becomes the object upon which fell divine hatred. And in this way, Jesus redeems us from the curse of the law, as Paul says in Galatians 3.13, by becoming a curse for us. And as Jesus becomes sin, he becomes the very thing at, at which the Lord's eyes are too pure to look. You read the prophet Habakkuk, who declares about God, you are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. And while Jesus never did anything wrong, he never sinned in any way himself, he, in taking upon himself the guilt for our sin, becomes the very thing the Father cannot look upon and the object upon which the Father must pour out his divine hatred for sin. Jesus, as God the Father, vented his wrath, experienced things that our mind cannot comprehend. That we cannot explain with any degree of satisfaction. Jesus here experienced the very torments of hell itself. Hell is the place where God's wrath is eternally dispensed on unrepentant sinners. And the prospect of that suffering is something we can't fully wrap our minds around. Where we pay for our own sin. Jesus is paying for the sins of all of his people throughout all the ages. And it brings him to this place where he can pray, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way to save humanity, may 
it be done. But as he continued in prayer, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In other words, if there is no other way, if there is no other way to accomplish the eternally agreed upon plan to redeem humanity, I am completely and fully submitted to your will in this matter. Your will is my priority. Your will must be done. You must be exalted. You must be shown righteous. And you must be revealed as the one, the Apostle Paul writes, as just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And after praying these things, verse 40 tells us that Jesus came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? He had just told them of his distress and his agony. And in this moment when he needed them the most, insensitive to the weight and the gravity of the moment, they fell into a careless sleep. This is the very Peter who had just confidently asserted that he possessed the power in himself to never deny Jesus. He said, I will die with you if need be. But this same Peter can't even watch with Jesus for a single hour. And so Jesus tells them in verse 41, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter, there is much to pray for and much to pray about. There is much to be alert to and on the lookout for. So pray as I've told you to be delivered from temptation. Because while it is true, Peter, that you are willing, that you truly do desire and are eager to obey me, your flesh is weak. Your flesh lacks the strength and the courage and the ability to actually follow me. And Peter will soon see this when he denies Jesus three times. And so after telling them to pray, verse 42 says, For the second time Jesus went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Now did you notice the difference between the first prayer and the second prayer? Here there is no direct prayer for the cup to pass from him. But here it is a holy acceptance of the Father's will. It's like the Father had answered his only begotten Son's prayer with, There is no other way. In Luke, we read that there appeared to Jesus an angel from heaven strengthening him. And so now Jesus seems to pray, If it is the case that this cup cannot pass, then your will be done. Your will be done. So after praying for a second time, Jesus came again in verses 43 and 44 and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. So even as Christ repeatedly reminds and tells the disciples to stay awake, watch with me, they kept falling asleep. Even on this night, as the eleven are with him in the garden, Christ knows that he will. Christ knows that he must drink this cup alone. Oh, how sorrowful it must have been for Christ, distressed and in anguish to call for prayer and petition and watchfulness from these men who had just forcefully expressed their dedication to him just a few minutes earlier, only to be met by their insensitivity and their seeming lack of concern, even as he tells them, my soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. Would you watch with me? But this time he didn't wake them up but left them again to go and pray for a third time. You see, after praying once again in verse 45, he came to the disciples, or the, after the third time, came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. Or in other words, are you still sleeping and resting? See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. The thing that I called on you to watch for has now arrived. The time has come, 
And it seems that Jesus has been strengthened by his father, strengthened by his angelic visitor for the task at hand. And he tells his disciples in verse 46, you see it, rise, let us be going, see my betrayer is near. Jesus knew that they were approaching and he could have in this moment said, everybody run for your lives. I'll meet you somewhere in the morning. Let's hide behind the trees. But no, the text says he rose and said, let's be going, meaning he went out to meet Judas, his betrayer, and everyone with him seeking to kill him. Judas is approaching. And now Jesus rises to go out and meet the sinful man who will take him into custody and ultimately put him to death. So you see, after the most consequential dinner in creation's history, which is the dinner that we just experienced when Mary poured the perfume on him and Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper for our continued commemoration until he returns, Jesus went out from that dinner and prayed what might very well be the most consequential prayer in human history. Prayers so intense, born out of a sorrow and grief unlike anything that any of us have ever experienced in our entire lives. Prayers of such passion and zeal that the blood vessels in his forehead burst and drops of blood fell from his head to the ground. And he asked in his prayer if there was any other way to redeem us. And we learn from these prayers that there wasn't. The only way that you and I could be saved is for Christ to drink the cup in our place. And all praise to God for the joy set before Jesus, even as he faced these most, ex most excruciatingly agonizing moments. He, for the glory of his Father, revealed and magnified in your salvation, rose up after praying three times and set out to do the will of his Father. What a merciful and gracious and committed Savior is Jesus, your Lord. That he would suffer so much without having in himself any trace or stain of sin for you and I. This is your Savior, people. He did all of this for you to save you. While you and I were so unworthy of so great an honor, your name and your face were set before him. And for the joy of redeeming you, he went to the cross and became a curse. He became sin. He was crushed by his own father for your sake. Do you see? Can you get a little bit of a glimpse into the price paid for your redemption this morning? Do you see that there was no other way for you and I to be redeemed? Had Jesus in this moment decided, you know what? I'm going back to heaven. I'm going back to the Father's side without going to the cross. We'd all be dead in our sins and destined for eternal torment. But Jesus, Jesus, out of his great love for his father and his great love for you who believe this morning drank the cup for the joy that was set before him Jesus endured the cross despised the shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God for you Lord God in heaven Heavenly Father, we thank you for recording these words in Scripture for us. Lord, I pray that as we hear these words this morning, as we explore them this morning, that they wouldn't lead us to any sort of agony or distress in ourselves, but that they would be a picture of the great love of Jesus Christ for his Father and for us. I pray that we would be so thankful this morning as we sit in these chairs, as we sit with each other, all of us who love you and are saved by you, rejoicing together that you, Lord Jesus, saved us. 
There is no greater gift, no greater love than what you have accomplished for us. Father, while we cannot begin to understand or to appreciate the level and the degree and the depths of the anguish that Jesus faced in the garden on that night, we know the results. And we will be singing your praises, lifting up your name, and exalting you from this day all the way forward for eternity. And we give you praise and honor for that in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.